Well, it is a joy to come back together in God's Word, and as I told in the first hour, I am terrified coming this morning to preach, primarily because I have way too much to say in a short period of time to say it, and uh, that tends to get me in trouble, because I tend to go faster or skip sections, and uh, just praying for the Lord's grace to guide us this morning. This is such a marvelously rich section of scripture, and I know as we've been thinking through this, I've heard feedback from you and various uh, um, thoughts, and I know the Lord is just working on our hearts as we are wrestling through this. In fact, um, I think what particularly presses me in thinking about the burden of this section is what this section of scripture reveals about us and reveals about culture in general, Christian culture that is, I believe that the average exegete, that is the average student who's coming and studying the word of God and drawing out the meaning of the scriptures, tends to practice a experimental eisegesis. Now I'm pretty sure you've never used that phrase around home here, but here's what it means. Experimental means that one uses experiences or practices, uses their own personal experience. Eisegesis means to push in a meaning. We exegete, we seek to draw out from the text the meaning. We seek to draw out authorial intent. We seek to draw out the mind of God. To exegete is to pull out the details and understand what is there. To eisegete is to read in, to push in a meaning. And the average Bible interpreter today takes personal experience and pushes personal experience into the Scripture. Understandably so, uh, in this sense, we can relate to our experiences. We know our experiences. That we can understand. So we take what we know and we push it into the Scriptures to find then meaning Only in that case, we end up making up meanings, we head into destruction, we fall into error. We are to come, if we're going to be students of the Word of God, we are to come to the Word of God, draw out the meaning of the Scripture, and then use that to interpret our experiences. Only then can we properly understand our experience, right? Only then can we properly understand ourselves and what we're facing when we know the divine mind and we know his instruction. For the most part, as a ministry, we're not attempted to practice a experiential eisegesis until we run into a difficult passage. And then we're all tempted to run around and find some kind of reference point that would make sense of the text. And I think that is the kind of pressure that we're facing right now when we're here in Romans chapter 7. Because we can all read ourselves right into that text. No matter what view you take, you can read yourself right into the text. You say, that makes sense to me. I understand that. That applies to me. That, that definitely has to be speaking about me. It was funny, just the last couple of weeks as I've taught and people have come back and responded to me, I have had somebody come to me and say, I just find great comfort in knowing 
that the Apostle Paul struggled with sin. As Romans 7 teaches that the great apostle who taught the word of God and was the minister to the church and, and planted so many churches that he struggled with sin and it just comforted my heart. I said, well, let me finish the series so I could just take that away. The other side, I've had somebody come up to me and say, I know exactly that experience in Romans 7 or growing up in a Christian home, or growing up in a legalistic church. There were always rules, always regulations. I can never keep them. I kept trying, I kept striving, I kept wanting, but I kept falling short. And everything I tried, I fell short. I had no power. I could never be delivered. I, I kept wanting to do good, and I was just powerless to it. I just wanted to kind of pair those people up and let them share experiences to see which one would come out and be right. But it illustrated my very burden that I am experiencing here is that if we're using experience as the grid to interpret the text, well, all of us will have different experiences, and we all can't walk out of here being right. And you can come and you can share with me the experience you've had or a family member had or somebody else with that text. It doesn't change what God said and how he said it and what he's actually teaching here. So we have to go back to the scriptures to draw out what God is saying. And now I know in this that both sides can read themselves into this and both sides can draw out some applications for themselves in this. So what is important for us to understand, okay, what is God actually saying here? And I want to say this, that if you have taken the view that Paul is referring to himself as the apostle, the believer, the one who's planted churches and ministered to churches, and this is the great apostle Paul, a believer in Christ who is now personally struggling and describing his personal struggle, and that brings a personal comfort to you, and then I'm coming along and poking at it and making it harder for you to hold on to that because I'm bringing some details that don't exactly support your view there, and you're struggling with it, let me just comfort you. There are other passages you can go to. I'll give you those other passages right now. So your heart is comforted that even if you are forced to change a view to align with the scriptures, it hasn't changed your experience any. Do Christians struggle with sin? Absolutely. Listen to this verse, First Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. Paul describing himself, he says this, it's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom, and now he says, I am foremost of all. He says, I'm a sinner. That present tense there, I am, regularly, I am a sinner. Need of a Savior. I need of this grace that God sends through Jesus Christ. He's saying, I need this. Again, this was the Apostle Paul who was writing from prison. He was writing to Timothy. He was seeking to build up Timothy. And he's saying, this is who I am, a sinner, the kind of sinner that needs the Lord Jesus Christ. He describes himself in Ephesians 3, verse 8, as being the least of all saints. He's also described himself as being the least of the apostles, the one who was untimely born, laid onto the stage, he recognized his own weakness, his own inabilities. He knew himself to be frail. Christians struggle with sin. It doesn't go away when you 
become a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, the struggle with sin doesn't go away. This battle against sin, the need to resist, the need to put it off, the need to put on the new man, the need to walk in newness of life is a regular work that the believer must be a part of. We know this. Just think about 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 13, that great passage of comfort for us in the midst of our, our temptation says this, no temptation has overtaken you. And here's the phrase of comfort. But such is common to man. Everything we face, we face that everyone else faces the same challenges. We're, we're uh, basically, when we come to church, you can look around the room and you know this. We're all loving misery together. Right? We're all loving the difficulties of having to resist the flesh together. We're all having to work hard to put off the old man and put on the new man if we have faith in Christ. This is common to man. The temptations on our heart are common to us. The lies the flesh believes are common to us. The, the, the fleshly passions and longings are common to us. This is normal. We are to put off the old man and put on the new man. So when we come to Romans chapter 7 and we see spiritual battle, we see a war against the flesh. We see the desire to do good and the resisting. It doesn't matter if you view Paul as a believer or an unbeliever here. You experientially know that battle. You know that struggle. If your heart has been informed with the truth, you know that battle. If you know God and His ways and you have, to some degree, desired to follow it. I've been teaching my kids that from the moment they entered into this world. There is a God, but you will give an account to that God, that you were created in that God's image, that you, live, you are to love God and to love your neighbor. And there have been many times when my little ones have come to me at different stages of life. I remember once when my kids were just young, and uh, five or six, coming with the pleading, Dad, we need to go share the gospel with our neighbor. They need to be at church. They need to know God. They knew the truth, desiring even within deeply to practice that truth even before their God to do a marvelous work to transform them. So this is to say that we all know the battle. We all have the experiences. The question is, what is the experience here of Romans seven thirteen to 25? Now, I need to add another particular challenge. I remember as I was working through seminary, one of the you know, classes had me study through this passage and I landed in a particular point and I was thinking through, why did I land there? And it was because of the doctrine of total depravity. And maybe you had this very thought in your mind as well when coming to this text. You have thought to yourself, there is no way this passage can describe an unbeliever because there are too many good things that this person does. They desire the law of God with their heart and they desire to do good and they joyfully concur with the law of God in their inner man. They must, these must be the signs of a believer. This must be the description of one who is regenerate because they are desiring these things. So it's this phrase, 
in verse 14, Paul says, I am of flesh. Four words in the English. I just want to focus on those words this morning. And ask this question. In regards to us, there are two questions we ultimately have to ask. The questions are, what is a biblical understanding of man? And what does it mean to be fleshly? Two different questions, cover one this week and the other next week. Because there's a lot to say in regards to what is the biblical view of man. If we get a wrong perspective of man, we're going to have a wrong understanding of this text. Or we're going to ignore what certain details the text gives because it doesn't line up with our perspective. It doesn't make sense. And so we will push them off and we need to have a proper perspective of man and what he is. Again, so that we can also reconcile what it is we're experiencing, what our experiences are. Because again, we can have a wrong view and even misinterpret what our personal experiences are. And that we want to clarify. So there are four truths I'm going to give you the remaining time that we have. Four truths about man. And I'm going to speak about the unregenerate man and the regenerate man. That is, we all share, all of humanity shares a commonality And the commonality is this, we're all human, born in the image of God. We are fleshly, we are a flesh. And so whether you're regenerate or unregenerate, you're of that being, created in the image of God. You are, again, one who is walking in this world in the flesh. So there's some truths I want to draw out. The first is this. We must understand the state of the unregenerate person from the Bible's vantage point. And when we speak of the unregenerate person, I'm just speaking of the natural man, the person born into this world before regeneration, before being born of God, that natural person entering into this world. The Bible says a lot about this person. In fact, Paul has said it. Already in Romans chapter 3, turn back to chapter 3, he says of the natural man born into this world, starting in verse 10, he says, There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. The description of the natural man here is just utter rejection. Every way, they have nothing within their heart is bent towards God. They are bent away from God. They are hostile to God and the things of God, he says. Describing, again, man in his nature in Adam, who's in a position of open hostility to God. I believe he picks up on that here in Romans chapter 7. You can turn over to Romans seven fourteen through 25. And what is emphasized in Romans 7 is the persistent state of this. He is persistently, this is the present tense, he is regularly, ongoingly sold into bondage to sin. He's of the flesh. 
Well, he is regularly of the flesh because he has been sold into sin. Verse 15, he's not doing uh, what he wants to do, but doing the very thing he doesn't understand regularly, continually, persistently. He's, he's regularly, uh, verse 17, unable to do what he'd like to do. In fact, he is noticing what is good, but cannot do it. He's willing, but unable, verse 19. He has an internal war with sin, verse 20. Even seeing within his own members, pulling regularly and continually against the things of God. It says the persistent state of the natural man is in that of rebellion. That of open hostility. And that is the emphasis within uh, chapter 7 here, is in the present continual state. It's not just the time right now. It is the continual duration of hostility and rejection against God. This is the natural man, apart from regeneration, apart from being born again. They're in a state of open hostility to God. And again, if grammar means anything, and the person who pounds the pulpit says, it's time, it's grammar is key here, present tense means right now, and I say, don't stop there. It also means the next moment and the moment after that, and continuing on, it means continually through. He continually is of the flesh, continually unable to do, continually delighting but always falling short, continually in the war, regularly unable. This is the state of the natural man. Described in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, as being dead in his transgressions and sins. Described in Colossians 1 as being in the kingdom of darkness. Described as being openly hostile, unable to appraise the things of God, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. That is man in his natural state. He's unbelieving. He is, again, resisting the truth and openly hostile to God. He is in the state in which he will not receive the things of God and he will not battle uh, for righteousness, he battles against it. That is man's normal state, born into this world because of Adam. We saw that back in, Matthew, in Romans chapter 5. All those who are in Adam are under condemnation. Which leads to the second truth the Bible teaches about man. The natural man is bent away from God. The second truth is this. That the believer is alive to God and a slave to righteousness. And we have seen this many times, but just to remind us of the point, and we've seen this in chapter 6 of Romans, when Paul says in verse 11, So consider yourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And in verse 14, For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. The believer is in a different state. They're not under a state of being controlled by unbelief. They're in a state in which they are controlled by the grace of God. They're alive to God now. We are slaves of righteousness, verse 18. We are to continue to be slaves of righteousness, verse 19, giving our members to righteousness. We are, as chapter 7 and verse 6 says of Romans, no longer walking in the oldness of letter, but we walk in the newness of the Spirit. 
And then into chapter 8 of Romans, we are now, by the spirit of life, we live in Jesus Christ and has set us free from the law of sin and death. If the life of God is ruling within us, we're set free from the reign of death. We walk in newness of life. Turn over to chapter 12 of Romans. This is why Paul then says in chapter 12, considering all of this that he has taught up to this point, he says then in 12, 1 and 2, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. So he's saying there, okay, brethren, give yourselves, your whole selves to God. Give yourselves over to him, your whole bodies, your whole life. Verse 2, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This is the believer, heart, life, mind, will, body, given over to God to be directed and led by God for his glory We're transformed into his image. This is why we are told in Colossians 3 to put off the old self, or in Ephesians 4, lay aside the old man. The believer is alive to God. The believer is a new creation in Christ. The believer walks in newness of life. The believer is freed from the slavery of sin. The believer is no longer under condemnation because he has been delivered through Jesus Christ. We are free to walk in grace. The grace that will lead us to walk in righteousness and holiness. That is the believer described in the scriptures. It means that what we will see within our life is this, an ever-increasing persistence in practice and holiness and an ever-decreasing frequency of sin. As we move, we will strive closer to God. We strive becoming more and more consistent in our righteousness and less and less disobedient. But it is to say that oftentimes if we just looked at the scale of our life, it would probably look at like the uh, performance chart of the S&P 500. Times in which you're moving up and then times a steep drop off only to recover a little bit, to drop off, to recover, and off and on. But as you look through the whole pattern, you see this progressing, increasing, striving to Christ's likeness. Because the believer is freed from sin. The believer is alive to God. Now, the third truth that I want to bring on our minds as we think about the nature of man is that while believers are free from sin and while positionally they are righteous in Christ, so as God looks at us as if we are perfect before him, we presently struggle with walking in obedience. Meaning, sin dwells within us too. So back in Romans 7, when Paul, describing the state of the unregenerate man, describes that sin dwelling within them, or even in verse 13, again, when he says, Therefore did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin, in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good, so that the commandment, or through the commandment, sin would become 
utterly sinful. Sin would dwell within us and sin is revealed. The believer does wrestle with indwelling sin. By the way, I think that whenever we do fall short, whenever we fall short of what we believe, whenever we have uh, walked in the old man, we do feel exactly what Romans 7, 13 through 25 is experiencing because we returned back to our old practices. Whenever we sin against the knowledge of the truth, whenever we sin against our convictions, our values, we are acting like we used to before regeneration. We were going back to those old practices and ways. Yes, believers wrestle with sin. This is why the New Testament is filled with exhortations and commands to walk in righteousness. It's because we're prone not to. We're prone to wander, prone to drift, prone to go back to the ways of unrighteousness, prone to give in to the flesh, prone to believe the lies of the devil, prone to believe the lies of the flesh, prone to give in to fleshly desires. We are prone to walk in unbelief. And so we need the commands. We need the exhortations of God to remind us that we are not to walk in those ways. And so the Christian lives in the sense that while facing temptation, reminding themselves of the basic truths, we're free in Christ, we're no longer slaves to sin. And we're reminding ourselves we have newness of life, we're not walking in our old life. And we remind ourselves that we have now the grace of God ruling and reigning, that we can turn to the truth and believe God's word and take those thoughts captive. We are new in Christ as believers. New, able to walk in the ways of God and the things of God. And while we recognize we are still of the flesh, we are still in our earthly bodies, we still live in a world of temptations around us, we still hear lies from, from outside sources and we are prone to doubt, it doesn't change who we are in Christ free to live for him in his glory. This leads us to the most important point. All that's warm up for this. Here's the most important point. And it's about the nature of man. And, and it is a, um, a personal struggle that we have to say, well, how do I view the natural person that is the unregenerate person who does good things. Is that even possible? Here's the fourth truth. The unbeliever or the unregenerate can be prompted and provoked to pursue righteousness in their natural state of unbelief. Or to say it differently, the natural man can be moved so far by God's common grace as to separate himself from the rest of humanity and yet never have eternal life. See, there's a difference between the natural man and his natural state apart from God and that same individual having received just the common grace of God, not the saving grace of God. I want to demonstrate this to you because it is that wrinkle that is not accounted for. 
when people think through this text, tend to just kind of bifurcate right down the line and say that you either have no signs of goodness at all or you have a sign. And that's the distinction between a believer and an unbeliever is any sign of good, you must be a believer. Well, not so fast because the scriptures say a lot about the natural man able to perceive the things of God even respond to those things, but then reject God altogether. And this is a bit terrifying because, again, this is where we would want Romans 7 to be a comfort to us to say we struggle, but actually Romans 7 might even say you are in unbelief because you trust in your own righteousness You trust in your own abilities. You want to prove yourself right before God so you work for him and yet you keep falling short. So listen carefully as we walk through this. Because I think as many coming to this doctrine or this passage come with a doctrine of total depravity but it actually in their mind is utter depravity. That they are believing that man is completely incapable of doing anything good at all. So there's no way that the natural person can do one single good thing at all. And I would say that if that's your theological understanding, you're not deriving that from the scripture. And I'll prove that in a moment. But let me just pose the question to stoke up your minds even more for a second as if I haven't enough yet, but think about this. Can the unbeliever respond in some way to the truth of God and yet not be born again? Can they do good things? Could an unbeliever go on a missions trip? And could an unbeliever share a Bible verse? And could an unbeliever say there is a God? And can an unbeliever say good things about God that would be true? I'd say, absolutely, you can do all of those things and still be far from God. Demonstrated because there is no love for righteousness is demonstrated because there is no love for God and the things of God. It demonstrates their heart is far from God, that they could talk about God, talk about his ways, but they are far from God altogether. And you might think, and again, this would be kind of, blowing your mind for a second, but how is it possible that somebody who would be dead in their sins then you know, not love uh, or, or do good things? If they're dead in their sins and they're rebellious, how could they possibly do good things? Well, let me show you from God's word. We'll start with the nearest passage to us. Turn back to Romans chapter 2, and then we're going to go to Genesis. So get ready. Romans 2, starting verse 14 and 15. Paul is making the case of the, that there is no ambiguity in the giving of his law and that both the Jew and the Gentile are under accountability to his law. And then he says this in verse 14 and 15 to prove his case. When the Gentiles who do not have the law, Notice, do instinctively the things of the law. These, not having the law, are a law to themselves. Notice what he pointed out. 
Here are the natural Gentiles, the ones who hadn't received the gospel and haven't received the law of Moses. They had no influence of God's redeeming grace on them, and yet they do instinctively the things of the law. Wait a second, you can't do the things of the law because you're unable as being dead in sin. Well, if that was the case, then they couldn't instinctively do the things of the law, which would mean then the law isn't really written on their heart, which would mean then God couldn't possibly judge them. The fact that they are able to do things that are good, able to respond, demonstrates God's righteous and partial judgments. So the natural man is capable of doing good things. Certainly, every once in a while, he does them. You know, I guess we could say it like this. Even the natural man's like the broken clock. He gets something right every once in a while. Something is in line. Now, turn over to Genesis chapter 1. Let me show you something else. Genesis 1, 26 and 27. I'll show you a couple sections here. About what God says about man. Notice Genesis 1, 26 and 27. God said... Let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Now verse 27. And God created man in his own image and in the image of God he created him. Are you getting it? Moses is adding it over and over again. Man is created in the image and the likeness of God. He says he created him male and female. He created them. The point that Moses draws out here is that man is created as a reflection of God, as an image of God. We're image bearers of the God. Go through the rest of Genesis, you head into chapter 3, you see the fall. You see the fall of Eve and Adam and their curse brought upon them. Turn over to chapter 5 and verse 2, 1 and 2. What is brought out there? It says in Romans, or in Genesis 5, 1 and 2. To this, this is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them, male and female, and he blessed them and named them man in the day when they, create, they were created. Now, notice a couple key points about this. There is a re-emphasis of God's order and design that he created man and made man in his own image. And by the way, remember contextually, this is after the fall. So as God goes to account Adam's life, he describes Adam even after the fall as still being in God's very image. One more, turn over to chapter 9. This gets a little more clear. In chapter 9, in verse 6, notice uh, what is stated there. Speaking about judgment and says, Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. Why? For in the image God or for in the image of God he made man. Man was created in the image of God. Now here's the key. To murder someone is to 
be a transgression because that person is created in God's image. Notice this is after the fall. These are generations later. So Adam, who had children, passed on to his children and on down the line. So having children didn't mar the image of God. Having the fall didn't mar the image of God. We are in God's image. Every person who enters into this world comes as an image bearer of God. It's what theologians call the imago Dei. We are created in God's image. You say, all right, so what does that mean? Well, quickly, here's what it means. There's an ontological element, which means we are like him in complexity and in personality and will. We reflect a complexity that God reflects. I mean, just go look at your pet. Your pet does not have the same complexity of personality, will, and thought that you have. You may think that and try to project it on them, but your, your pet does not reflect the same ontological characteristics that you reflect because you're created in God's image. Another reason of being created in the image of God or another effect is volition. We have will. We express our will. We choose and operate according to our will, just as God has will. We have intellect, we reason, we think, we, we talk, we, we have rational thoughts. We can imagine, we can demonstrate the use of mind just as God also reflects intellect, knowledge, and understanding. We reflect God emotionally, just as God expects wrath, uh, expressed wrath or anger or, or love. We too express emotions, just as God expresses emotions. We are rational beings, just as God is rational. We are functional beings, just as God rules. We are called to rule. But most importantly, created in the image of God, we are moral beings, and this is the key. We are capable of reflecting the moral attributes of God. God is justice, we can reflect justice. God is mercy, love, peace, grace, forgiveness. We can demonstrate all of those attributes because we are a reflection of God. My cat still hasn't forgiven me. He's completely incapable of forgiving me. But my kids can forgive me. My, my wife can forgive me because they are created in the image of God. So that the natural person, even one unregenerate, creating it in the image of God, is able to reflect in some degree, even if marred, the very attributes of God. Even if they're a broken clock that every once in a while they get it right, they're still able to, to demonstrate this. Typical argument of Romans chapter 7 is there's no way the natural man can desire what is good. There's no way for the unregenerate person to appreciate God and the things of God and to call out to God. And I say, well, actually, on the contrary, that's not the case. If he's created in the image of God, it's not the case if God has written the law of God and put it on their heart. But it's also not the case, and let me just show you from some scriptural examples Turn over to Matthew chapter 7. I'll show you from Jesus' own teaching, a couple other spots, that just even in history, this doesn't play out. Matthew chapter 7, in verse 
21 through 23, these terrifying words are stated by Christ. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Man, that's a terrifying statement there. Saying here's, there are some who will not attain eternal life even though they can recognize and call out to me, Lord, Lord. He says, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Verse 22, and many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Meaning, didn't we have many good deeds that we did? Preached some good messages, we cast out some demons, we performed some miracles, we demonstrated these marvelous deeds. To which he says, then I will declare to them, verse 23, I never knew you. Notice, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. You who lived in this persistent, unbroken state of rebellion, even while casting out demons, and even while proclaiming great things in my names and performing these miracles, you lived in this rebellion. Very fact that one could call out, identify the Lord, desire heavenly things, and yet have their heart far from God demonstrates we couldn't, uh, that the unrighteous, the wicked, could desire good things, even practice good things, and yet be in rebellion against God. Let me show you this in another place, turn over to chapter 13 of Matthew. Chapter 13 is significant in Matthew's account because Jesus begins to speak <clears throat> to his audiences in parables. He's no longer speaking to them directly. He starts to speak in parables. And the first parable he gives is the parable of the seed and the sower. And uh, you remember the parable that the seed is cast and the seed falls on various soils. One is on the rocky path or on the path. One is on the uh, rocky soil and one is on the weedy soil. And then one group of seed falls on the good soil. The first three soil conditions are unrighteous conditions. And he, Jesus goes on to explain them. The soil that with the seed that falls on the rocky path, the birds come and eat it up. It never produces any life. But there are two seeds that produce life but fade away. That's the rocky soil and the weedy soil. Both get choked out, both die. But specifically, I want you to look at verse 20. Yeah, verse 20 in this. Notice what Jesus says. The one on whom the seed was sown on the rocky places... This is the man who hears the word, and notice, and immediately receives it with joy. That there could be one who professes a faith that, that even immediately receives the word with joy only to fade away. Verse 21 describes it. Yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. That is the, again, an unrighteous soil that may produce an immediate, seemingly good response, a response where there's a joyful delight in the word only to have it choked out and killed because of persecution and suffering. My point is this. 
that the unrighteous can do many good things and we might be confused looking on them from afar. We know that intuitively. Think about Judas. When Judas was exposed at the Last Supper and Jesus looked around the room and said, one of you is going to betray me, the other 11 didn't say, yeah, we know it's Judas. Uh, we, 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 we could tell his whole life. It was just full of uh, corruption. No, they immediately thought, well, it can't be my neighbor. It must be me. The Lord, is it me? The self-internal focus. Because, Jesus, because Judas had gone on missionary ju- uh, journeys and Judas was there during all of the other experiences where Christ was performing miracles. Judas was right there and all of those things. He was in the boat when he saw Jesus walk on water. He was probably even crying out the same way, my Lord, my God, as he was seeing those miraculous events and yet his heart was far from God. He did good things and yet he was far from God. Turn over to Romans. Let me just show you a couple examples from Romans where this comes out, speaking of the Jews. The point I'm trying to draw out is one is saying there is no way that an unbeliever, one who is unregenerate, can do anything good. You're just not lining up with God's creation or the Scriptures. Because Romans chapter 9, speaking of unregenerate Jews, says this. Romans 9 and verse 31 says of Israel, They are pursuing a law of righteousness, but did not arrive at that law. What are they doing? They're hungering for righteousness, desiring it. Into chapter 10, verses 1 through 3. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. You mean the very salvation of the people who are longing for righteousness? That's the one you're praying for? Yes, For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. They they have a zeal for the living God. They they have a passion, longing for Him. Verse 3, For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. Yeah, they even loved righteousness. But they wouldn't come under Him. They wouldn't come under the righteousness of God. They wouldn't bring themselves into subjection. So back to Romans chapter 7 then. What do we see in Romans chapter 7? We see the man who in his natural state, informed by the the common grace of God, can appreciate the things that are good, but still is powerless. No power to obey doesn't have the Spirit of God ruling in their life, doesn't have the grace of God ruling. They are under a state of awareness, under the state of even affirmation, under a state in which they can affirm what is good, but they're also in a state of persistent and total slavery to sin. No power to resist, no power to overcome, no willingness to even let go of those things because of the slavery to sin. There's a desire for the rewards of heaven, even a desire for the things that are righteous because that's the image they're created in, to delight in the things of God, and yet there is no source of strength within. 
And the law can't deliver them in the midst of that. The law can't come in and point them to the path of righteousness because the law will only expose their inability. The law continues to point to righteousness and continues to reveal guilt. That's all it can do. Can't deliver. It can't rescue. It can't save. But it can condemn. And it can condemn justly and righteously. And that's what, exactly what it does. And so the natural man sitting in that state, longing to do good, even de- desiring it, trying even in his best efforts to do good, only finds con- continual, regular failure. Failure that burdens him because he knows that there is a God. And he knows that there is hope in God. But the Christian... That's not where we live, right? We are, in the beginning of verse 25, thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we are in 8.1. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are living in the grace of God who has set us free from this slavery. We are living in the Spirit of God who lives through us. So, What do we see here in Romans 7? We see our natural state whenever we return back to our sinful condition and we walk in the old man. Or we see the natural state of the unbeliever informed by grace but not transformed by the saving grace of God. Next week, when we'll come back, we'll talk about the question of what is the flesh? What does it mean to be in the flesh, walking in the flesh? For now, we recognize this, the shared human experience of every person created in the image of God. We are created to reflect God and his glory, but only by the regenerating work and the special grace of God will we be set free to walk in newness of life And praise be to God. It's this simple. If you're in the spot where you're thinking, how do I get there? Here is the answer. Confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Recognize your complete and total inability and throw yourself upon God for he alone can rescue. Because as we saw in our scripture reading this morning, what is impossible for man is not impossible for God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these truths, just so much to think upon, so much to shape our minds, and we just love going to your word and letting your word direct our path, for it is steady, it is sure, it is comforting, and even when our hearts are unsettled by the truth revealed, it is when we fix our eyes on you and your graces that we are again settled no longer tossed here and there, no longer living in fear, no longer living in uncertainty because the God who cannot lie and does not lie has spoken clearly to us so that you direct us in all of our ways. And we are thankful that we have been rescued from that total slavery to unrighteousness and set free to walk in righteousness. And even while we war in the flesh. We do not war according to earthly weaponry. We now war according to spiritual weaponry. We put on the armor of God to walk in newness of life. So as we think through these things, 
May we fix our eyes and hearts on the truth of your word, not trusting in our own wisdom and understanding, not relying upon our own experiences to be a guide, for we do not even trust our assessment of ourselves. We trust in your word alone, so may that be most evident as we think upon these things. It's in your name we pray, amen.